Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 71 of Conquering Columbus. And today on the show, we got a real special guest with us, uh, Mr. Roger Blackwell. And for those of you who don't know Roger, he's the same person who the Blackwell Hotel on Ohio State campus is named after. And uh, Roger has a lot of insight in the marketing world and just a lot of knowledge in general. And uh, during the conversation, it really comes out and you can really get a good understanding for business from Roger. And I think that you guys are going to walk away from this episode with a lot more knowledge and a lot more understanding. And I hope you enjoy it. Before we get to that interview, though, guys, I want to take a moment and ask you all for a quick favor. Go ahead, pick up that phone of yours you were listening to this on and uh, check out your podcast app, whether it's iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, uh, whatever you like to listen on. Uh, there will be a subscribe button. And if you click that, it'll make sure that you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. And the last thing we want to do before we start the show is take the time to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net. And let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. We also want to give a special shout out to our friend Gary Ross. And Gary, a four-time CEO of Columbus, Ohio, just recently came out with a book called The Growth Cube, in which he shares his proven six dimensions of business growth and success uh, for small to medium-sized businesses. And the book provides a step-by-step guide with tips, charts, and graphics uh, for leaders and business owners. And uh, if you guys are entrepreneurial-minded or a business owner yourself, I definitely think you'll enjoy the book. Uh, you can head on over to thegrowthcube.com, which will be linked in the show notes. And uh, let Gary know Conquering Columbus sent you. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. All right, Conquerors, that's all we got. Let's get this show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to Conquering Columbus. Uh, Mike here, and we're really excited for a special guest today, Mr. Roger Blackwell. And for those of you who don't know Roger, he's a professor at The Ohio State University where he taught marketing and research in the Fisher College of Business and Healthcare Economics in the College of Medicine until he retired in 2005. He also taught marketing as a graduate student at the University of Missouri, where he received his BS and MS degrees and at Northwestern University while receiving his PhD in multidisciplinary business. While at Ohio State, he was also a visiting professor at the Stanford University Graduate School of Business and the Technology MBA program at the University of Washington as well as lecturer in universities in Canada, Europe, and Africa. And welcome to the show, Roger. We're really excited to have you today. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so what's a typical day look like for you? And how's your day going today? Uh, today's going great. I read the obituaries every morning, and if my name's not in them, I know it's going to be a good day. <laughs> so it's a good day. And uh, typical day is atypical, basically. 
Uh, mainly I work with uh, startup companies today uh, on their boards and advisors and so forth. And there's no typical because uh, one day, not too long ago, somebody, one of these boards I'm on, called and said, one of our programmers in another country has gone rogue and stolen the passwords and is going to hold us for ransom with our clients. And he was getting ready to get on a plane and go break the leg of the guy who did it. And I said, no, this is not the way to solve it. So we solved that problem. Another day, it might be uh, one not too long ago, at a board meeting, um, one of the physicians asked the CEO, what are those black spots on your arm? And he said, bug bites. Well, they're not bug bites. <laughs> and so you had to deal with that. On the other hand, some days, the good days are um, when somebody, one of the companies that I'm involved with, digital signage company called and said, we just got a $300,000 contract, which is big for them. So every, no days alike. Yeah, it sounds like your days are a lot more interesting than mine are most yeah. of the time. Yeah, I just started uh, my master's and been introduced to the world of case studies. And I've never once run into a case study where we had um, anybody go rogue in another country and steal a <laughs> code or any suspicious right. black dots in the CEO's arm. But if I do... I'm going to reach out to you for some help on that one. Call me. I, I've been through it a few times. Yeah. <laughs> That's one of the things, being on so many boards over the years, uh, lots, most of the people I work with now are about your age, which it is over 21, isn't it? But You can tell by the facial hair <laughs> that I'm starting to get. But you. most of them will say, you may never have seen this problem before. Yeah, I've seen it two or three, maybe 20 times. And, uh, that's the, the wisdom that comes from experience of making decisions, many of which were bad, but... Hey, that's how we live and grow, right? So kind of the way that we like to kick things off is start from the beginning and, and talk a little bit about your background and your path up through academia and uh, when then when your career started to develop and the paths that you took from there. Oh, okay. Well, my career started at age eight when we moved from the farm to a, I, I won't call it a city. It was a town of 7,000 people. And I had worked hard on the farm, as everybody does. And my mother said, would you like a job? I said, oh, that sounds like fun. Uh, and we sent away to get some sample greeting cards, and I started selling them door to door. The time I was 12, I was actually making as much as the fathers of some of my friends in school. Uh, this was many years ago, and, but that got me started on the entrepreneurial path. But then I switched and went to work for other people <clears throat> when I was 16. And I worked full time through high school from 16 on and through college, paid my own way through college. My parents weren't really in a position to pay anything for my college and so I graduated with no debt and uh, a lot of practical experience. What kind of jobs were you taking throughout your college? Well that's uh, I started when I was in high school I, I liked radio because I did a little program for a high school there and I talked to some of the announcers and found out that this is perhaps advice for our listeners on how to get your first job the announcers had to empty the trash and sweep the floors and stuff when they went off their shift. They didn't like that. And so I got on my bicycle and rode out to the station manager and said, I have an idea. I will come out after school every day and clean the place. I'll be your janitor for free. And he thought about it a minute. He said, well, that's a good idea. You don't have to do it for free. I'll pay you 50 cents an hour. And in the mean, and I did do that, and I learned how to be a radio announcer and, and sell advertising eventually and stuff like that. But I also studied, in addition to working full time and going to high school, through DeVry uh, correspondence courses and got my engineering license. So I started as a janitor at age 16, and five years later I was chief engineer of the radio station. And that gave me a lot of experience in uh, the broadcast business. And then when I worked for my master's degree, I got a job, actually the undergraduate, the last year of it, and my master's degree, I worked for a newspaper. So I learned the practical aspects of both broadcast, advertising, and also newspaper business, which led me into marketing, even though that's not what I started out to do at all. I was going to be a lawyer, and so that's why I majored in history. And, and in my, after I had completed three years as a history major, I had a scholarship at the University of Missouri Law School where I was planning on going. <clears throat> and I made an appointment and talked with the dean and said, I have a full year of electives in my final year. What should I take? And he said, business. He said, that's the future of law. If you're going to go into law, you need to know business. So I took my final year totally business courses, got a dual major in business, 
And as part of that, they said, would you like to stay on, get your master's degree, and we'll give you a teaching assistantship. Now, normally that's just for PhD students. And this, I was just a master's. And I taught a marketing course, even though I'd only taken one myself. And I, I taught that course, and that's where I fell in love with teaching. And uh, I'm glad I went that direction instead of uh, a law degree. And so I guess what I'm curious about is that moment that led you on that path would have been that first time. How did you realize that they needed a janitor at, at the radio station? Well, because I talked to the people who worked there. I was, I was, we had a high school program every Saturday morning for 30 minutes on, it was called Horace Mann Hits. I, I took a popularity, a poll among all the other students to see what are the three most popular songs. This was in the Elvis era and so forth. And uh, then I would play those on Saturday morning for 30 minutes as a high school thing, give the sports reports from the night before and that sort of thing. And I got to know the um, announcers. And, and they told me a problem. And you see, that's what entrepreneurs do. They solve a problem. And I thought, these announcers have a problem. I, could, I can clean floors and then I looked at the, uh, talked to the manager of the station. I knew he had a problem. He didn't have a whole big budget because it was a little small radio station. And I said, I can solve your problem. <laughs> and I didn't have a car then, so my bike would get me there. And by networking, and here's what, and, and, and I think that's important for anybody who wants to be an entrepreneur. Be willing to work at your first job free. You know, that's the best way to get a job is offer to do it free. And then the second thing is get to know everybody there. And you, I networked with the announcers and figured out what was really going on, and that led to a successful career in marketing. So the unique thing that I think we've come to notice about the entrepreneurs that we've talked with is that they, they kind of look at the world in a different lens like you have, and they instead of just seeing things for the way they are, they see things for the way they could be, and they try to, like you said, solve problems and, and develop unique you know, resolutions to situations where they're currently being handled. So that's kind of interesting to hear the way that you approach that. Yes, and, and you have to take advantages. For example, uh, Coca-Cola sponsored something called the Hi-Fi Club. And I went out and did, uh, it was a disc jockey at Friday Night Dances, Sock Hops. Now, you probably have never heard of Sock Hops, but that was a big deal back then. And because of that affiliation with Coca-Cola, they arranged for me to interview Elvis. It was on the phone, not in person, but to broadcast on this and so forth. And one thing led to another. And you just take the opportunities, and when they present themselves, you say, yes, I can do that, <laughs> even though you've never done it before. So we talked a little bit about the beginning, and we were talking about undergraduate majors, and um, yours was in history. And I think some people, they kind of, you know, the non-STEM fields, they kind of undermine them a little bit, but I think understanding, because now you can Google everything and find history, but I think having a deep understanding of it really helps you lay the framework for creating better ideas for the future, so. It really does, you know, uh, there's nothing so practical about predicting and forecasting the future as really understanding what caused the past. Uh, Winston Churchill one time said, anyone who is, fails to learn the lessons of history is doomed to repeat them. Well, that is so true. I, I taught strategy. Uh, when I taught at Stanford, I taught the strategic planning course uh, and other places too. And there's nothing more practical in understanding strategy than history because you understand what caused it. And a good history teacher doesn't teach dates and people to memorize their names. He or she teaches, why did this happen? You know. Um, Probably the president since World War II who's made more historic decisions than any president since Lincoln was Harry Truman. And, and the interesting thing is he never went to college. Graduated from high school, went into the Army, ended up being president of the United States by a circuitous path, really. And he said this, how did he make such historic decisions? And you probably, many of our listeners probably wouldn't realize no, they say, oh, the bomb, he dropped the bomb. Well, yeah, that caused American supremacy for 50 years in the world just because of that decision. But that was minor compared to the fact that who desegregated the American military? And it was Harry Truman at great personal risk to his own career. And 
he, people said, you won't be a reelected president if you desegregate the military. And his answer was, well, it's the right thing to do. If they die together, they ought to be able to eat together. And he did it. And, and he is the one who recognized Israel, even though his own Secretary of State and the, all the experts in the State Department said, don't do that. And actually, Europe would be a, a, a communist area today if it were not for Harry Truman and the Berlin airlift and standing up to Stalin. And there would be no South Korea today if it had not been for Harry Truman. Well, how did this sorely simple farm person know all this stuff? And he made a statement that characterizes the great entrepreneurs today, the really successful ones, the Les Wexners and the, and, and the Bill Gates and the Sam Waltons. He said, all readers are not leaders, but all leaders are readers. And the people who read books get conceptual models in their head. If you just, picking up on what you just said, is if you read the internet and you get all these data, that's great, but how do you have the conceptual models in your head to interpret all that data and figure out what they mean and where the future is going? And the answer is by understanding the past. And books give you conceptual models. Internet, magazines, they're important, but they're snack food. You know, you can't live on Pringles all your life. The, the solid nutritional food intellectually and developing cognitive skills comes from reading books. And uh, Les Wexner recently quoted Harry Truman when he said, all leaders, he said, all readers are not leaders. I, this is not a guarantee that you'll be a leader if you read a lot of books, but all leaders are readers. And that's why Elon Musk reads a book a week, Jamie Dimon does the same thing, Bill Gates does the same thing, Les Wexner, and I had the privilege of working around Walmart quite a bit. Sam Walton had two questions he asked his employees when he only had seven. And he, you know, he didn't start his business, which created the richest family in the world until he was 45 years old. So I'm guessing you two guys are under 45. There's still time for you to become <laughs> the richest family in the world. And the question, do it twice. <laughs> the question he did ask everybody who worked for him is, what books have you read lately that would make our firm better than others? And if you don't have an answer for that, your firm's not likely to do that well. Yeah, I've always been really envious of people who are avid readers as children, because I wasn't. And somebody like Mike is. And you know what's interesting sitting around Mike and spending time around him is that you'll say things to him, and he has the ability to make these connections. And I think like exactly what you're saying, I'm basically just rearticulating it, how much I agree that you have these, these different associations in your brain and these people who are avid readers can make these connections very quickly. And then you, I mean, you have people who work hard and are intelligent and you know, if they work hard enough, they'll make the connections eventually. And it's become so relatively easy to get facts today. A lot of data. Making sense of all that data comes from conceptual models. And uh, when I go into somebody's office, they'll say, hey, I gotta take a call, uh, be comfortable and you'll see me looking around their bookshelf. Because when you know what is in a person's bookshelf, you know what's in their head. And some people have an empty bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I love reading. I think I read a quote the other day talking about most Fortune 500 CEOs, like they read an average of like 50 books a year. So that's right. It's definitely Les Wexner says 40 to 50 books a 40 year. 40 to 50 books, yeah. So it's definitely, definitely a correlation there. So what I'm interested in is what books do you recommend? Oh, that's a good question. We didn't set this up, did you? No. <laughs> this is a wild card question. Wild card question. Wild card question. My website, rogerblackwellbusiness.com, has three categories of books. Uh, one of them is the books I've written, of course. Mm -hmm. And the second one is recent provocative books. And, you know, I have things like uh, Hannah Rosen's book on why women are going to take over the world and stuff on there. And then I have a section of the classic books that every business person should have read by age 30. And these are things like Peter Drucker and Tom Peters and uh, Lencioni's Five, the Dysfunctions of the Team and, and, and classic books. Good to Great is the one most often. And now when I'm with other groups, They'll say, oh, well, those are books you say that should be written or read by people before they're 30. 
And the answer is, yeah, but if you're over 30, it's still okay. <laughs> so let's take it back and talk a little bit about um, your time studying and getting your PhD and then kind of your path moving forward from there. Sure. Uh, I was fortunate in that when I got my master's degree at the University of Missouri, I had uh, professors who really recommended me go someplace else. I could have stayed at Missouri and got my PhD there, but they said, no, you need to move on. And I was fortunate to get full-ride scholarships at Harvard and Wharton and Northwestern. And I interviewed the professors there, and I liked the values better of the professors at Northwestern. That's where I went there. And my PhD program was five areas. Now, usually you just concentrate in one or two, but I took uh, economics and social psychology, quantitative methods, almost killed me because I was never good in math, uh, and history, picking up on my interest, and marketing. And that area, we actually wrote the first textbook at Ohio State on consumer behavior. Today that's often called behavioral economics, but uh, when Mike said I, my PhD was multidisciplinary business, that's how we created the first textbook on consumer behavior, which is in, I don't know what, how many languages, 12 or 15 different languages and used all over the world. What is marketing? Is it economics? Yes. Is it quantitative methods? Yes. Is it social psychology? Yes. Is it history? Yes. Oh yeah, and we threw in marketing there just to make some of the practical applications. Uh, but from Northwestern's PhD program, um, I came to Ohio State and I kind of came to Ohio State for several reasons. They enlisted some local business people who were interested in the topic of my dissertation and agreed to fund my research. That's, I had offers from uh, Illinois and Michigan and Ohio State, and they were all pretty similar. $9,600 a year was my starting salary, and you guys get that a month, probably. Uh, <laughs> well, I yeah. maybe I should be asking for a raise. I don't know. <laughs> But uh, 9,600 uh, and, and Illinois and Michigan and Ohio State were all the same. But I came to Columbus and stayed. Never could get another job, so I just stayed here. Uh, that's not really true. But uh, I, I chose it partly because of the support from business people. And I think that makes a professor more practical when they're actually having people who are doing the stuff they're researching, asking them questions. Well, wait a minute. Are you sure this really works this way? That makes you a better professor. And the, and the second thing is I liked Columbus because it had more opportunities. We had a, uh, another professor here who made a candlelight close trying to get me to choose this school instead of the others. And he said, well, your biggest problem if you come to Columbus is choosing which opportunities to pursue. He said, if you go and live in Ann Arbor, there's a few but not many opportunities for growth. If you go to Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, but here in Columbus, you can be a great researcher, you can be a great teacher, you can be a great consultant. You, your biggest problem will be how to handle all the many opportunities when you live in Columbus, Ohio. And he was absolutely right. She talked a little bit there, too, about choosing the values of the professors um, at Northwestern over, you know, the Harvards and Stanfords, Kellogg. So or sorry, the Whartons. So can you talk about what those values were and what kind of stood out to you? Well, uh, what stood out was when I went to Harvard and Wharton, they were offended that I would consider any other school than them. And the arrogance was not something that impressed me. When I went to Northwestern, the professors were very sincerely, they said, well, Roger, we know you have a lot of opportunities. You need to do what's best for you. And here's how we figure it. When I went to Wharton, because I had a marketing major uh, in the master's program, they said, you can't take any more marketing courses. You've got to take something else. And it was like, I've got to conform to what they want. And at Northwestern, they said, well, you have all these interests. We want what is best for you. That's different. Now, I, was, I guess I was afraid I would become like Easterners if I took the values of the East Coast instead of the Midwest. Yeah, and so um, as you continue through that uh, degree, um, what were some of the key things you learned like when you were studying there? Were there any key research projects you remember? Or, or your dissertation? Right. Was that on? Uh, yeah. My dissertation was deathly. 
<laughs> Actually, I started out studying cross I like cross-cultural. You know, I, I study values across cultures and have written books on that and stuff. And the, uh, you know, why, why are some nations poor and some are rich? And its answer is their values. And I took a year's sabbatical and went to 14 countries to study that. And it's values. It's not technology. A lot of people say, oh, it's resources, isn't it? No, the country with the most resources in the world is Russia. And they're not very, they're just slightly above the average income, and they're not doing well. Brazil, Nigeria, the firms with the most resources are some of the poorest in the, country, in the world, and the firms with some of the least resources, like Switzerland and Singapore, are among the richest. Both of them richer than the U.S. Why? They don't have natural resources, so they have to have values. And, and Singapore is my favorite example because that was a, uh, a malaria-infested swamp in the 1950s, one of the poorest countries in the world. And they changed their values because of one leader, Lee Kuan Yew, and became arguably the richest country per person in the world. And its values, the same thing is true with companies. Um, the, the, the book Built to Last by Collins and Porrest illustrates the firms that have the best values are the most successful in the long run. So that's, that's a scary thing, I think, for a lot of, whether it's leaders or individuals in general, to accept as an answer because it's not very, like you said, um, like analytical. You can't really put your hand on it and get, a, and get a straight answer out of value. So how do you take that and apply it to your business or life? Well, you read the books of people who do actually study that and get the empirical data on what makes it. Uh, the, the most recent book is called uh, the, the, the Culture of Growth by uh, Joel Mokir, who is a professor in both Israel and the US. And he's analyzed that, and he goes back to study why did England dominate the world? And, and the reason was because of the Industrial Revolution. Well, why did the Industrial Revolution start in England instead of Europe, where they were much more advanced in technology, or Asia? Asia had gunpowder and porcelain and all kinds of things. And the answer was Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton, who believed that you do research and empirical data-driven stuff for a different reason than just doing it. You do it to improve the material standard of living of humans. From that came the Industrial Revolution, and from the Industrial Revolution, England conquered the world, basically. And so there's another book uh, through our podcast people by McCloskey, Deirdre McCloskey. She's a professor at the University of Illinois, and her book uh, is on bourgeois inequality. And her earlier book was Bourgeois Virtues. Why are some people rich and some poor? And the answer is not anything else except values. Now, those values are correlated by what did your parents teach you? Did you have involvement of religious institutions in your life? Uh, what kinds of things have you read? But whether it's corporations, nations, or individuals, it is your values that will determine your success more than anything else. And uh, I, I, I know that economic historians have the data on that, and uh, my website has some of those books on it, and if anybody wants to email me, I'd be glad to uh, respond to that. So. Yeah, we'll have it linked up in the show notes as well so they can check Good. that out. Yeah, of course. And, you know, it's interesting. It's something that we talked a lot about in, on the wrestling team at Ohio State was culture and how your culture shapes your values, your values shape your culture, and it's just an endless circle. And that determines outcomes, right? as the, both the wrestling team and the football team have discovered. Yep, and uh, Mr. Kite, Mr. Kite was Mr. Kite himself. instrumental in that. Absolutely. And his brother, Pete Kite, mm -hmm. you know, started a company that was, I was very involved in. He and I met uh, to start this little company because he had an idea. He had a laptop, and he developed stuff, and it's called Check Free. And I was one of his first, if not his first, director and in, involved in that from the very beginning. And it was also probably my most successful financial thing. I, I have a home that is... I paid for it with cash, pretty big home and expensive and everything. But a lot of people say, well, how much did that cost? The answer was $24,000. Uh, 
because that's the investment I made in check-free. And when we went public, I sold that after taxes and still had some stock left to pay for my house. And so uh, the name Kite, whether it's Pete that I worked with or his brother, who works with a lot of people today, um, it's, it's so important. And, and we don't teach that in school because I think we're afraid to. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it implies, well, who's to say one person's values or not? And the answer is, just look at the data and, a and answer that question with data. We know why some people are poor and some people are not. A lot of people say, oh, well, you're just born that way. No, no, no. 67% of all the billionaires started out like Les Wexner, living in a very modest, some people have called it a shanty, I, I wouldn't call it that, but on the east side of Columbus. Most billionaires start out with nothing. And, and then some, I'm on the right path. <laughs> and, and sometimes people say, well, what's the best chance of becoming a billionaire? Start with nothing. <laughs> and actually, statistically, 67% of all of them come from that. Whether it's Jack Ma in uh, China or um, Bill Gates didn't start out with nothing. His father was a prosperous dentist. In my latest book, I have a, a bunch of stories about the people and how they got started out. And, the book features garage entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, people who started with nothing and built it. Steve Jobs started in a garage. Bill Gates did have the advantage of a fairly prosperous family to, to help him. Not terribly wealthy, but a dentist. And, you know, these dentists, some of them make money and some of them don't. Uh, <laughs> but the interesting thing is if you look at Jeff Bezos, who I regard as probably the most a uh, successful executive in, in the U.S. as an example is, why did he move, put his wife and dog and all their possessions in a station wagon and go from New York to Seattle? And the answer was because of logistics and supply chain management. And I, I talk about that in more detail here. It wasn't because he liked rain or there were a lot of computer programmers who were, because he liked coffee, that's not why he moved to Seattle, is because he understood that logistics were the key to his success. And then, of course, he's evolved from that. Uh, but how did he pick his first home? Because it had a garage where he could start his business. And you're just, your essence of that is that it's all rooted back in their values, is what you're saying. It does. And uh, Jeff Bezos is, he's not usually identified as a Hispanic, or uh, a Latino, but uh, he was raised in, he was adopted, and he was raised in uh, the uh, uh, Latino culture of South Florida and Texas. And his, his values, and these are not always what you, people say, oh, you mean moral values. I don't mean that. I mean there are certain values are defined as shared beliefs of, uh, and, and if they're not shared, they're, they don't create success. Values are two types. I, I've written chapters and books on this topic, so I won't get off too far on that. But instrumental values and the, the, the uh, words. Words are what we write down, and, and they are goals, and we put them on corporate websites and stuff like that. But the actual behavior, terminal values are words. Instrumental is what people actually do. And if you go in and measure a company's behavior of the people, then you will find out about its long-term success by looking at the values of the firm. There are many other factors, of course, too, but that's the, the essential thing that determines the firms that are built to last. That was the empirical data that Collins and Porce wrote about. And we're actually going to have uh, Tim and Brian on um, in the next month or two, and then um, hopefully Pete in the near future, because Jeff's told us about Check Free, and it's an awesome story. And really incredible growth and uh, obviously a big exit, so that's really exciting. It is, and in, in the values, in, in my Saving America book, my favorite chapter maybe, Jeff, Jeff Bezos is probably more instructive than any other chapter, except the chapter on Les Wexner maybe, but is Dave Thomas. You know what college Dave Thomas went to? None. <laughs> he, only he only went to the 10th grade, and he, he, he was adopted and never knew his birth parents, in fact. And his birth, or his adoptive mother died when he, I think, was about 10. And he um, had a father who couldn't keep a job. They moved from city to city, and that's why he couldn't 
stay in school. And he finally, when his father remarried and had another family, he just stayed where he was in Indiana at age 14 and then became manager of the local restaurant at 16. And if you understand Dave Thomas's values, you understand why he was so successful. And if more people understood and adopted his values, I doubt that there would be any poverty in the world today, and maybe no war either. And if you go to Wendy's website, you will you'll see their values nicely written out and so forth, and, and I've tried to describe them in my book. But the interesting thing is, I've heard them, him say, well, it's just be nice. And, and that really is the essence of the values that make people successful. There's an interesting thing in uh, the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, where I try to, whenever I try to read something like that that has so many different points coming from all angles, I try to boil it, da boil it down into his essence. And I feel like one of the main things he points out is just genuinely becoming interested in other people. And it's a very hard thing to do sometimes. When you create that value, I've created the most distinct and genuine relationships. Yeah, when people talk about Dale Carnegie, they often talk about networking and lots of things like that, which are important manifestations of it. But knowing what other people, what makes them tick is the key to consumer behavior. Yeah, I mean, in business is, is all networking, you know? I mean, it's just mm -hmm. all relationships, so. Absolutely, yeah, and I think, like you said, it's, it's difficult to, it's not quite a value, is it, if you have to think about it. So it's, it's something that you have to keep working and build a culture in your company to really, to really cause those values to be a part of your company, if that makes sense. It, it is, and, and I, you asked me earlier about a typical day. I, I spend quite a bit of my time teaching seminars for companies, and one of them is on values and how to inculcate them. And I use examples, uh, not only Wendy's and, and companies like that, but companies that have lasted 100 years, like Bechtel Corporation. And if you, a new employee goes to work for Bechtel, they spend two weeks, the first two weeks, learning the values of the culture. And I know people who work there, and they're not allowed to disrespect each other. And I know a, a, a young person in her, her 20s who's an engineer in there, and she's in a project team where the guy's in his 80s. And, and probably he says some quirky things and so forth, but, he, but they respect him, and they don't just force him out, and that's all part of the value system. And one of the best examples is Mars Corporation, family-owned corporation, second or third large third, I think, largest corporation family held in the U.S., in the world, maybe. No, probably Ikea's bigger one, and Aldi's bigger. But, but the central thing about it is every new employee gets a 27-page brochure signed by family members about here are the values, not only what we say in words, but what we practice in behavior. And if you go to the Mars buildings, they'll have a conference room, and they have five principal values, and one of them is the mutuality value. In one of the conference rooms there is mutuality, and they'll say, hey, meet me in mutuality. Well, those are the ways you reinforce this rather than just put it on the corporate website. So here's a, a selfish moment I'm going to take for myself. As we're growing here at FMX, we're um, hiring you know multiple employees per month. I think one of the things that we balance is competition between respect and a passion for each other and growing as a company. So when you start mixing values like that together, have you found you know a unique approach to that situation that really helps companies excel? Well, discussing the values is one of the most important things. And, and writing them down is a good thing, the, the, the so-called terminal values. But developing it, and, and this is why some of the good companies have you know, they go climb mountains together and boost each other up over rope ladders and all these experiences because you do have to learn who you can trust. And, and great leaders emerge because two things, people trust them and they know who they can trust. And it's not everybody. And you have to experience trust and untrustworthiness to, to do that. And, and I've I've seen companies where they had people who were really intelligent and all these sorts of things, but if, if they're not, if they don't have the right values, you, you know, you don't want them. And that's why Google's gotten so big, it's changed a little bit, but initially they 
had, I think it was, I, I can't remember whether it's five or seven interviews with every person by senior executives before they hired a person. I, I think that's, they can't quite do that anymore, but what they wanted to do is hire people with the right values. Um, and right is not in the biblical, moral sense. It's, it's work values. It is concern for others, just like you said, the willingness to get understand. Uh, there's a book that's very popular called uh, Leadership and Self-Deception. And the whole point of that is it, you're not going to be a leader if you're deceived about who you think you are in an organization. And other people don't think that. Um, a, company, a person can just be absolutely brilliant and really good, and he or she is not going to be a good leader unless if, if they're de deceiving themselves about what other people think about them. And we have 360 reviews, and we know the five dysfunctions of a team and so forth, and there's lots of good books on these kinds of things, but the reality is uh, companies that are built to last are slow to hire and quick to fire. And you can train people with the techniques that are needed in a firm, but you can't train them for the values very well. You can recruit to the values, you can inculcate the values, and you can reinforce values. Those are all important. But uh, without the right values, you end up in the chaos that Uber ended up in. You know, brilliant guy, bad values. And the best thing to do is fire people with bad values. Yeah, ease them out, reassign them. There's a great company in Tata, Tata in uh, India, and they have a policy of not firing people, but they reassign them to lower level positions and so forth. And we don't have that culture. Uh, you don't fire people. That's not good management policy. You retrain if you can. You reassign frequently. You do all these kinds of things, but you don't let it go and create problems within an organization. So in some sense, say, oh, well, you're quick to fire. Yeah, except that you want to be more sure that you have the right people to hire is even more important. So we made a joke at the beginning about how you have till 10 p.m. today. I think we might accidentally keep you here because <laughs> I, I'm having a great time in this conversation, and you're brilliant, and you have a lot of knowledge to share. But I think uh, maybe to get us back on That comes with age, bit. you know. Yeah. Well, and, I, and, I got to try and, to get and, older and, quick. And then. if you want the truth from anybody, there's only two other people you need to ask, young kids and old people. The young kids will tell you the truth because they don't know any better. And the old people will tell you the truth because they don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so going from there, um, maybe let's take it back a little bit to your time teaching, um, the different experiences that you had at the different universities that you spent at, and then from there into the corporate world and some of your most significant experiences there. Well, uh, I was f fortunate in that I had all that practical experience going through school. So I started... Uh, at Ohio State when I was 25 years old with a PhD and eight full-time years of experience. That's kind of unusual. But the uh, thing that I love about the Fisher College of Business, historically at least, it, professors have tried to do research that actually applied to firms. And when they do consulting on the outside, it's, it's a tension because they get promoted for one thing and one thing only. That you do not get promoted for good teaching. You do not get promoted for consulting. In fact, both of those can be a negative when it comes to promotion and tenure. You get promoted for publishing research, and you have to do that if you're a young assistant professor. But I was fortunate that sometimes my consulting jobs would provide data that I could publish in academic uh, publications. And so I tried to work those best. I think the most interesting consulting job I ever had was one of my failures. Um, but it was not as big a failure as it was for the company. I was asked to do a train-the-trainer project for a very large corporation, uh, one of the biggest in the world, one of the best brands in the world, one of the best technology in the world, and certainly one of the, nobody had a better distribution system other than Coca-Cola. I mean, it was the best in everything. And they wanted me, I had a, my own consulting firm at that point, and to train their people on how to do marketing research. 
And then the people I trained were going to do the same thing all over the world for this company. And in the process, and it was a very lucrative contract for me, and there were two major parts of it. One, get ready for the first initial session, and then second, train people from all over the world that they would bring in. After, as part of the first one, I sent them out to actually do the research. We sent them out to shopping centers to, and we used that company, of course. And they came back with data that indicated a huge problem, a huge problem in the company. And I got called in before my next session by the vice president of marketing, number three person in the firm. He said, Dr. Blackwell, he said, we're not happy with what we've been hearing about this first session. You're causing consternation with our employees. They're questioning our strategy and our whole future. And I said, well, yeah, that's what we learned by talking to consumers. He said, well, we believe we have the highest quality product in the world, and they did. And we believe consumers will always buy quality. I said, yeah, but what if convenient, convenience is more important than quality? Well, we've addressed that problem. Maybe you've guessed the company I'm talking about. It was Eastman Kodak. And what we discovered was, yeah, they had the best film in the world. And, but, but what did you do with film? With an analog photograph, you have to take it someplace and get it processed and go pick it up. And the VP of marketing said, we understand that, but we've addressed that problem because we've put in these 55-minute processing places in all these Walgreens and places and kiosks in front of shopping centers and so forth. So, no, that's not really a problem. And I said, I kind of think that the world is, uh, the research, I didn't say I think, the data says consumers want digital photographs. And their, th their idea was we sell memories, not film. Well, they did, but you had to process that film. Mm -hmm. And make a long story a little shorter, <laughs> um, two things happened. They were put out of business. You know, Kodak mm -hmm. eventually went bankrupt for exactly that reason. Yep. They didn't understand that digital wasn't as good a quality as film at that point. I think it is today. But then it wasn't the attribute that consumers wanted, which was convenience, mm -hmm. digital. And the other thing is they fired me. But he said, no, you have a contract, and we will pay you. So I, I didn't have to do the second project, and I got paid anyway. So I, I don't know whether that's good or bad. I, mean, but. I don't think it looks like a failure on your part, though. You mentioned it was a failure, but like you told them, hey, I told them what was going to happen. Disruptive technology. There's uh, books by Clayton Christensen at Harvard Business School, which deal with how big firms deal with disruptive technology or don't deal with it, basically. Innovator's Dilemma and the Innovator's Solution. I, I hope all our readers have read one or more of Clayton Christian's book. His brand new book that just came out a few months ago is called Competing with Luck. And it's a shorter, much shorter book than the others. You can read it in a few hours. It's, I recommend it to people because he talks about jobs theory. What do consumers really want to buy? And if they walked into a hardware store and said, I want a quarter-inch drill, you'd say, well, they want to buy a quarter-inch drill. That's what they told us. That's not what they want to buy. They want to buy a quarter-inch hole. And so the job they want is to get a quarter-inch hole made. And of course, increasingly, uh, here locally, Nutter Hardware is one of the stories we talk about in here. They have handymen because they may not even want to buy it. They not only want to buy the drill, they don't, if they had one, they don't want to make it. They want somebody else to make it. That's essentially a solution to jobs in America. We talk about jobs going to factories overseas. That's uh, not the way it really works. Factories, 85% of all jobs in factories that have been lost went to technology, not overseas. You can bring every factory that ever went overseas back and it wouldn't affect more than 200,000 jobs in the US. Irrelevant, actually. And, but you can't very well have your uh, home repaired, whether it's the roofing, as Abel does, or the plumbing, as Atlas, uh, now air conditioning and stuff. You can't have that done overseas. So anybody who knows how to do something with their hands. You know, we talk about STEM. Well, that's important. But if you can't, you know, there's an old saying that if, if you don't have good philosophers and good plumbing, neither your theories nor your toilet will work. 
You, you've got to have just as many people who know how to do things with their hands, and that's not something that can be outsourced overseas. Yeah, that's, I mean, an AI rabbit hole that I think you can go down, and I think it brings up an intricate point because people have so much fear over AI taking jobs, but I think there's an aspect of it, and some people would call it creativity depending on how you define it, but what you just stated there was that there's a way of looking at certain situations and what consumers actually want and understanding it correctly, whereas AI can kind of see things black and white. I don't think it'll ever be able to truly... Well, you're so right about that. AI is a perfect example, of, especially with personnel AIs for screening resumes. There's two or three out there. And uh, I've talked to many, many people. I, I lecture to mainly small businesses today, doing a few million to maybe 100 or 500 million. And the interesting thing is, I ask them often, does it take much time to screen resumes? They say, oh yeah, I pour through them hours and hours. Well, AI can go through hundreds of resumes, or thousands, from basically all over the world, uh, and narrow it down to three. These are the three best. Instead of wasting human time going through all these resumes like we've done in the past, AI can get down to the three that really are the best ones they could possibly do and values maybe how you should select them. And I've talked to people, they said, well, we're not sure which values we should be selecting these people. AI can get you the resumes that meet all the things, but it's the human that has to sit there and say, yeah, this, these values match with our organization or they don't. AI doesn't do that. That's where the traditional interviewing process works better. Absolutely. And so um, as we kind of move and shifting towards the end of the interview here, one thing I wanted to ask you about is you're on the board of directors now for dozens of companies. Uh, you talked a little bit about earlier when you were talking about your standard day, how many problems could pop up during the day. So um, how do you find time to devote attention to all of them? Um, I don't. <laughs> but I, uh, well, that's the nice thing about being retired from the university. I can spend, uh, recently I spent all day long with one I was on 14 public boards and about the same private boards. I'm no longer on public boards, just private boards. And I, I really just uh, basically do ones that interest me. One right now that I'm working with is a drone company. And, and they're doing bridge inspections and water tower inspections. Wow, they can do them in two or three hours instead of two weeks. Instead of four or five people, it's a drone that gets within three centimeters of every inch and records all the data digitally and they can analyze it in a few hours and so forth. To me, that's fascinating. And so if somebody just came in and said, I'll pay you a whole lot of money just to be on our board, which the public boards do, uh, I, I'd like to have a few of those still, but I don't have any public boards anymore. But the ones that are doing something interesting, is they, they attract my attention. And being on a board, it's like being a parent. Some of the boards, to, to really answer your question, some of the boards don't take that much time. Some of the boards are like parents raising a kid who never gets in trouble with anybody. He or she goes through school, he graduates with honors, uh, they go on to college, they graduate, and you just sit as a parent and watch them walk through the graduation line. There's not too many kids like that, and there's not too many boards like that. Others are like problem teenagers. You just have to deal with stuff. and. Uh, uh, fortunately, that's the good thing about retirement is you have time. I'm meeting with one tomorrow that he's got a new app that uh, we'll see what it's like. But, um, you know, I can probably look at it in two hours and tell him whether he's going to be successful or not. And uh, um, the uh, kind of things that uh, you, you do, it's sort of allocation of attention by interest level. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the final questions on my end, you've experienced so much and you've worked with so many amazing high-level people. Are, and you talked a little bit about, you know, the Kodak experience. Are there any other significant experiences as we kind of close things out that really stick out to you throughout your time thus far in life that would be beneficial? To Do we have base? another three hours here? <laughs> no. Some of the people, the executive, the two executives I've worked with most that, that I respect most that I've worked with closest would be Les Wexner, right here in Columbus, and Jack Welch. I first started working with Jack Welch when he was executive VP, he wasn't president or CEO. And after I did a project for him, I got paid, of course, 
But I also got a personal handwritten note from him. And I have a notebook of memorable correspondence. I think I've got about a dozen handwritten notes from Jack Welch in there. He knew how to show appreciation really well. And he was maybe arguably the best executive of the world. Although this morning on CNBC, I heard an interview with Warren Buffett. Wow, that guy, he just blows my mind. He's so smart. He has all the command of details. He, he has big issues and little issues. And um, I, I've never worked with him personally. But Jack Welch and Les Wexner would be the two that probably impressed me most that I've worked closely with. I was on two of the boards for Lex Wexner. And uh, I, I also have met some political people that I was impressed with. The most Im impressive was one which I was a kid and didn't know how to do it. I met Harry Truman. And he wrote me letters of thank you. And when I was the president of our high school class, audacious me, I wrote him and said, would you come and speak as our commencement speaker? And I have a handwritten letter from him saying, my schedule won't permit it, but uh, thank you. Well, that <laughs> teaches me. Uh, one of the persons that I was impressed with, I was on a program with her where I moderated a panel with her, was Lady Margaret Thatcher, the Iron Woman. And we, we had a pre, the day before, met with her chief of staff, actually a sergeant uh, from Scotland Yard, because the IRA was a big threat and we had to worry about it. And she's, um, the sergeant told us, okay, after a certain amount of time, we're having tea in her suite. I'll stand up, that is your cue to leave after about 15 or 20 minutes. And so she stood up after 15 minutes and my friend and I who were there with her started to leave and Mrs. Lady Thatcher said, oh, young man, sit down, sit down. And we talked for two hours. And she told me about Khrushchev and I told her about Harry Truman and Eleanor Roosevelt who I interviewed when I was working at the radio station. And it, it, if you study people that they're not always wonderful people. And one of the things you learn about Harry Truman or Eleanor Roosevelt or Jack Welch is they had good things and they had bad things. And that's one of the biggest mistakes we make as humans is we think if somebody's really good, we ignore their bad. And if we th think if somebody's really bad, we don't see anything good. But that was, that was uh, Sam Walton's other question he asked. You take competitors and he send his employees out to understand them and they'd find a really bad competitor, and he would say, yeah, but what did you see that was good about them? Because every competitor has something good or they wouldn't have any business. And I think that's true with humans, too. You, you want to look at people who are bad, and I've met plenty of those, but I found good things about them, and I've met wonderful people, some of the ones I've mentioned, that they have some bad things, too. Steve Jobs was basically a bad human being, but there's a lot to learn from him. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a pretty great answer. I'm glad you brought that up, Josh. Um, so one of the last questions we always like to ask focused around. This is our third time saying last question. This is <laughs> okay. the real one, though. This is, this is the real last question. This is the bad part about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it's focused around the mantra of our show, which is live uncomfortably. Um, and it focuses, you know, obviously on putting yourself outside your comfort zones to improve, but... What do you think of the phrase and how does it apply to your life? Well, living com uncomfortably is one of the keys of long-term success. You know the marshmallow tests in Stanford University. People who delay gratification beyond immediate gratification are much more successful in life than people who want it now. You don't want the Ferrari now. You want the Ferrari five, ten years from now. I prefer Porsches, but... Uh, but I think of the un live uncomfortably as uh, I'm not a runner, but I'm a jogger. And I ran the Columbus Marathon a few years ago by mistake. Um, the summer before, it's in October, the summer before, I had just gone through a divorce and I had a lot of extra time. And I usually jog about five miles, not every day, but pretty close. And that summer I had time to do that. And so I did. And a few days, we go by, I, I go by a track is where it was, and I would take an extra four miles on the track because it's easier. It's a rubber track. And so I was doing nine miles, eh, maybe once or twice a week at least, but I'd never trained for a marathon. Well, I had nobody else 
near me to t occupy my time. And uh, actually, I just signed up a couple of days. I thought, I, I think I'll do a half a marathon. And I, I called my son the night before, and I said, where are you going to be tomorrow morning? I've got to put an emergency contact, and I may need it <laughs> and, uh, on this, you know, the back of the thing. And I ran the first part of it, which goes through Bexley. And Governor Taft was out in front of his mansion. And he came out, because I had done some work for him quite a bit, actually. And he came out and gave me a high five. He said, Roger, I didn't know you run marathons. Uh, as I left there, I thought, oh, darn. No, he's going to ask me about this. I got, maybe I should finish this thing. <laughs> but I got to German Village, which was about halfway through. And I felt pretty good. And I thought, mm, this goes close to my house, just two blocks from my house. That's only... That's mile 19. I knew, I knew the route well enough. And I got to my house, and I was hurting. I, I, I will say that. I had cramps in my legs and stuff like that. And then I thought, well, it's, it's less than nine miles to the finish. And I run nine miles sometimes when I don't feel like it. I think I can make this. And I believe being an entrepreneur is just like running a marathon. The ones who finish it. And they're probably going to end. I intended to just do a half one. But you just keep going. And that's the way it is. You know, Les Wexner was asked, did he start out to be a billionaire? And the answer is no. I just didn't want to be poor. Well, he ended up pretty wealthy. <laughs> and that's the way it is with successful people. And on my website, I have Roger's Rules for Successful Life. And um, it's taking the long run view. And that's what a marathon really is. Yeah, really, that's a great answer, I think, and uh, I think it's a great place to wrap up, Roger. We really appreciate your time on the show today. you have any last words before we uh, close out here? Well, for entrepreneurs, oh, yeah, the last word is uh, if they really want to know any more, they can always read this book, Saving America, <laughs> How Garage Entrepreneurs Grow Small Firms into Large Fortunes. And we have a chapter on there of why most entrepreneurs fail, and it's TMC. TMC. I'm you have to read it to find out. Got to read it. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you then. It's too much capital. Too much capital. That so makes many sense. people come to me and they say, oh, "I tried to be successful in business, but I, I ran out of capital. I was undercapitalized." And my answer is, "No, you were overexpensed." And if you focus on raising capital, and so many people do this, it's a big mistake of people say, "Oh, we had another round," and we they, they talk about how much capital they've raised. Don't talk about that. Talk about how much profit you have made so far. Because if you can make profit, and, and my advice to people is don't give up your day job when you start a new firm. Do it like you had Rick Miller on one of the uh, uh, things. Do it in your garage. And that's the way Les Wexner did it. That's the way people don't give up your day job. Prove your concept. Make the firm work out of your garage or dormitory room or as a Cheryl Kruger did with Cheryl Company, out of her kitchen. The people with money, will, capital, will come running to you, and you'll get much more favorable terms than if you go to them before you have made your firm work on a small scale. All right, that's a great place to wrap up, guys. Roger, thanks for joining us. Uh, that's Roger Blackwell with some great advice for all entrepreneurs and anybody in business out there. Uh, Conquerors, we hope you enjoyed that episode, learned a lot, and thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. If you guys enjoyed that episode, Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. And that starts with our friends over at AWH. For those of you who haven't heard of AWH, they are a digital product consulting, user experience, and software development firm. And with over 22 years of experience, AWH collaborates with a variety of clients to drive desired business outcomes through great digital products. To find out more, check out awh.net and let them know Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. For more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. 
FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know you have to choose it and yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.